Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of February 5th, 2018. On this week's show, we're going to talk about the Philadelphia Eagles' 41-33 win over the New England Patriots in Super Bowl 52. A lot of stuff happened. Two segments worth of stuff. When we're done with that, we'll be joined by Jeff Passan of Yahoo, who'll let us know if baseball's slow free agency market is evidence of collusion by major league owners. Joining me here in Washington, D.C. is the author of the book's Word Freak and a Few Seconds of Panic. It is Mr. Stefan Fatsis. Hello, Stefan. Hello, Josh. And with us from New York is the host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist, and the best Super Bowl party in all mm. of New York City, mm. Mike Pesca. Hello, Mike. Thank you. We had macaroni and cheese in little cups, served Ooh. in little mini muffin cups. Ooh. I like that. That was just the tip, the tip of the snack iceberg. Oh, all right, well, we let's... had a cous- couscous and ratatouille mix. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> let's uh, let's save that for the for the body of the show. Let's not give away the good stuff too <laughs> That's soon. Right. That's right. That was our trick play. You come for the couscous. <laughs> turns out there's some chopped up vegetables. The Eagles uh, won forty one to thirty three. Man, that was a really good Super Bowl. I don't have I much of it. a. I don't have much more of an introduction than that. We don't need much more of an <laughs> introduction just, than that. Let's just get into it. Most yards in an NFL game ever. Ever in any game. That was 1,151 yeah. yards of, of offense, Mike. Did they even say that during the game? <laughs> no. We, no, we it was, on, super, it was yeah. on pro football talk afterwards. They were too busy yeah, complaining I guess, about the, the Eagles' last two touchdowns, Collinsworth was. I guess the uh, point where they set the record and eclipsed the uh, 1952 contest between the L.A. Rams and the New York Yanks, uh, that happened at a critical juncture. So you don't stop and say, they have just set the record for most yards in a game. I also saw that stat report as, hey, it was the most yards in a Super Bowl. Yes, and all <laughs> the other thousands of games. Like, that's notable. Isn't that notable? Uh, I will get into, we, we will get into the flaws of each team's defense, for with great offenses <laughs> come poor defenses. However, I would just like to note, one of the reasons that this was such a great game is because of the Patriots' Or uh, but accomplishments. So in any normal game, when a team like the Eagles showed the dominance they were showing and went out to the point total in leads at different junctions that they were going out to, we would say, maybe this is getting away. And then I guess you would say the Patriots or the team in the Patriots, the trailing position, they stayed close enough. But because it was the Patriots, we always assume, well, if there's more than, you know, a minute 30 left, 
and they're trailing by seven or maybe eight or less, then they'll definitely win the game. So this basically builds in a 15-point buffer. So we never say the game is anything but exciting if the Patriots are at any point within 15 points, which is what happened during the game. Take away the Patriots and what we think the Patriots will always do to come back. The Eagles were dominant. The Patriots were great on offense, but they made uh, a few mistakes with kicks and things like that. And the, pay, and the Eagles didn't make mistakes. They had an interception. That was just a, no, it was a receiver mistake, not a Foles mistake. The Eagles really, maybe we should say the Eagles put it to the Patriots and never let up. And uh, they kind of crushed, crushed this legendary team. Let's maybe also say that the Eagles outcoached the Patriots because Doug Peterson's game plan was fantastic. I mean, he took a quarterback that hadn't been playing two months ago Retailored the offense after Carson Wentz, the starting quarterback, towards ACL. Rejiggered the entire offense around Nick Foles' abilities. And two months later, the guy played brilliantly. His passes were better than Brady's overall. And I know Brady threw for 505 yards and had probably the greatest single quarterbacking performance, arguably in certainly a big game. Josh was very excited because he was closing in on the record for most passing yards in a game. What was it, 565? It was... Norm Van Brocklin? Yeah, it was like 554, 554 I think. 554, whatever. It was a lot. But Foles' passes were in... I mean, the, the touchdown passes that Foles threw were fantastic. They were in tight spaces that required, you know, the only way they would have been caught was if the receivers also made remarkable plays. But look at what Doug Peterson did, just the way he called this game and the risks he took that that 30 other NFL coaches probably wouldn't have taken. He went for it on fourth down twice, called that amazing play on the one-yard line at the end of the first half that I'm sure we'll get into in more detail, um, on which Nick Foles scored a touchdown. That was just a, a perfectly executed offensive game. Super smart and super fun to watch. Why do you have to compare Foles to Brady in the first place? They both had great games. They both why, had great games. Why denigrate uh, the great Tom Brady and oh, praising because they were Nick playing Foles. each other. That's what we do. Josh, it's because yeah. they were the two quarterbacks. <laughs> and one of them oh, won yeah, and yeah, one yeah, of them yeah. lost. <laughs> that was the other okay. reason. Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> I get it. You're yeah. right. You're right. It does make you wonder if um, how much of quarterback play being shitty, especially like non top shelf quarterback play being shitty is due to like coaches not putting Stefan is like I am nodding, nodding frantically he's like yeah, looking like a bobblehead over here yeah <laughs> um, but yeah how much of it is because coaches don't put these guys in position to succeed I mean we knew from you know five years ago that Foles is capable of having an unbelievable season the year where he threw for 27 touchdowns and two interceptions but um, the play action passes it was the most play action passes yep. In a Super Bowl uh, ever, according to Kevin Clark of the Ringer, 21 play action passes. I don't know about every uh, game in football history, Mike, but that's still a lot of play action passes. And Foles was just always kind of roll. Whenever he was rolling out, there was a receiver rolling out with him who was open. You know, whenever he was looking for Zach Ertz, you know, down the seam, Zach Ertz was open down the seam. You know, whenever he was throwing down the field to Alshon Jeffrey, it was in a favorable a uh, one-on-one matchup. And, and, even, and, and even when when he wasn't open down the field, he was throwing balls to them that were catchable into incredibly tight spaces. Full yeah, his, his, his His interception was a really good throw, actually. Yeah. It just bing, bing, binged uh, off the receiver's hands. That is correct. The whole... Oh, uh, we have a quarterback, then our quarterback goes down, and of course he's a backup and he stinks. And here's the thing. 
And he he doesn't really fit our system. Or you get a quarterback, or even worse, you don't get maybe a good, better quarterback, but you get the quarterback who, quote, fits our system. And Peterson says, um, since quarterback is by far the most important position in all professional sports, maybe we should tailor a system that fits our quarterback. I mean, it's a nice point when you lose or get bounced in the playoffs and you say the quarterback didn't fit the system. People will not and maybe not fire you. Or Peterson instead (laughs) says, let's let's tailor the system to the quarterback. I kind of was wondering, how come we all made jokes about Nick Foles being this terrible option? He did have that amazing TD to interception ratio record uh, when he was the starting quarterback. And Carson Wentz being hurt, we did I, th- I definitely think we put way too much emphasis on the fact that he was a backup and, and backups aren't as good. But that one game against Oakland where he really did look terrible, we put so much emphasis on that. That's why they were underdogs for the first two rounds of the playoffs. I could understand it with Minnesota. Well, Foles hadn't played yeah. well in a couple of years. I mean, he had, had, he had put up some stinky numbers other than that game against Oakland. Yes, but did did he have the system that fit the quarterback? And question. not only that, did he have a coach that trusted him? And I think that when, when we talk about Peterson, this is what made me the happiest, is that he gave the players agency. He let the players do things that other coaches won't allow players to do. On that on that on the on the touchdown pass two folds at the end of the first half. This was something they had practiced for like three weeks. Like most plays, it had been borrowed from other places. A college team, Clemson, had run it. The Chicago Bears had run it. Um, And they got to the sidelines, and Foles said to him, let's do it. And Peterson said, okay. I mean, how many coaches in the NFL would run a direct snap to a halfback with an end around to a backup tight end and a pass to a quarterback in the flat going into the end zone. And this was on fourth down. Against the New England Patriots with a chance yeah. to, to with a chance to score three points for sure. Well, but for those stakes, the answer is the Chicago Bears would run it. I don't know if you <laughs> saw the play. Matt Barkley caught this in the same in Minnesota, in the same end zone, the exact same play. I know a lot of people were talking about the catch that um the catch in the Rose Bowl by Oklahoma, but that was a totally different play. It wasn't a direct snap. This was the precise same play. Therefore, Peterson outcoached Belichick yes, on that one. Yes. And what the bottom line, the point here is that Peterson trusted his players to do fun and risky and crazy stuff, and it paid off. <laughs> Let's note that the Patriots ran a pass from a wide receiver to a quarterback, Amendola to Tom Brady in the Super Bowl, which did not succeed. Tom Brady, yes. not the fleetest of foot, but um, the Patriots. <laughs> the longest had, of hand for the adeptest <laughs> at athletics. The Patriots had run that exact play against the Eagles two years ago to uh, some success. But um, there's another parallel here because as Greg Rosenthal pointed out on Twitter um, back, I remember us talking about this on the show when um, Belichick went for it on fourth and two against the Colts on that Sunday night football game. And it caused this like huge kind of national conversation around uh, fourth down calls. And then, uh, you know, in this game, Peterson goes for it a bunch of times, including in his own territory towards the end of the game, and everybody agrees that it's a, the right call. So we do see some evolution there around fourth down calls. I wouldn't be, like, so self-congratulatory. I'm sure that if um, the Eagles had failed on either of those, he would have um, gotten killed today. But yeah. I think that when you're talking about agency um, and coaches, I think one of the things that Belichick has done really well over his career, he's a total asshole, and he doesn't necessarily treat his players like they're people. But when it comes to in-game 
management and making decisions strictly on the field. I think he has been way ahead of his time and has like, in a certain sense, given his players, you know, freedom and agency to do kind of wacky shit. I do wonder whether Belichick and the Patriots were feeling kind of outfoxed toward the end of this game, too. I mean, on the on the final kickoff, when they were down eight with a minute a minute and change to go, they tried that that uh, that deceptive kickoff return thing, a handoff on the on the four yard line, and it didn't work. I mean, maybe that's a kind of risky play that you know, if if they break it, Belichick again is a, hailed as a genius for trying something. He was trying to set up Brady to get the Norm Van Brocklin passing yards record. Clearly, yeah, yeah, I didn't factor that in. So Belichick really was giving his players agency there, Josh. You're right. Okay, let's um, go through some more of these superlatives here because I don't feel like we went through all of them. Uh, first player in NFL history to pass for 500 yards, uh, three touchdowns, and no interceptions and lose the game. That was uh, Mr. Tom Brady. First team in NFL history to get 600 yards in a game and lose. Those were your yeah, New England Patriots. You would think. <laughs> That's uh, crazy. The Patriots had no punts. And lost. There's only excited about this. There's yeah. only one punt in the game, and there's only one sack in the game, which was really the uh, the key play in the game was the Brandon Graham sack and fumble um, when it seemed like the only logical thing that was going to happen was the Patriots driving to get the game winning score with two minutes to go. Yeah. Um, I guess and that's so unusual. Uh, I was going to say that's so unusual because part of the reason that Patri- that uh, the Patriots and Brady make these comebacks, we see the ball, we follow the ball, it goes into the receiver's hands, but they adjust so that he might get sacked or be pressured during the game. But at the end of the game, when he's making drives and even against the Giants, you know, conventional wisdom, which is true. The Giants won their Super Bowls against the Patriots because they put all this pressure on Brady. Remember Brady, but for Eli Manning's comebacks, Brady would have won one game and made a fourth quarter comeback to win another one of those games, okay? And the reason is that the line gets better. Uh, from what I understand, they kind of have it in their back pocket and they just know how to protect uh, on the last drive of the game. And he always has a clean pocket on the last drive of the game, except this game. It's very, very different from how the Patriots usually do it. Not just the result, but what caused the result. Well, Brady had a clean pocket for almost all of this game. I mean, that was really one of the very few times that he was pressured during the game. Yeah, I mean, both teams pass protected really well. And I saw like a bunch of speculation around this is the future of the NFL around people who are just like kind of high after what a fun experience that was. But if you like, you know, wake up the next morning, you're like, I don't know if the future of the NFL is there like being no penalties all game long. Like that seems like kind of an outlier and we have no reason to expect that's going to continue. Also, like neither team getting any pressure on the quarterback. That also seems like... A massive outlier. And so, yes, I mean, I think what we learned from this game is that football is really fun with no no penalties. Um, you know, we can talk about the replay reviews in a second. But, um, you know, that also that quarterbacks, and I think we can say that Nick Foles is at minimum a very good quarterback, that if you have really good quarterbacks and really good coaching and really good skill position players, if there is no pressure on the quarterback, you're going to get a whole mess of yardage. Yeah, it's going to look like a uh, college game. It's going to look like, you know, West Virginia or Texas Tech or some red gun spread offense. And we're going to get a result like that. In fact, I love what I understand gun. we had. Yeah, we had over a thousand yards of offense. That's a good thing unless it becomes too much of a thing. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. 
you earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. All right, let's um, take a quick um, moment to note that in our Slate Plus bonus segment, we're going to be talking to Jim Saxa. He's a reporter in Philadelphia who uh, wrote a piece for Slate last week about Philly maybe not being an underdog city anymore. We'll talk to him about what uh, the festivities were like in Philadelphia yesterday evening. If you want to hear that, join Slate Plus for just $35 a year. If you do, you can get bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts every week. Sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. All right. You know, I feel like this podcast, when we're talking about football, we always like want to be a little bit of a downer because that's just our brand. Mm -hmm. And I feel like Mm -hmm. we've been a little bit too positive so far, but there's a lot of stuff to be a downer about in that game, Stefan. This was a microcosm of the NFL. You had like everything that makes football great. It was a reminder that it's, you know, can be one of our better sports, if not the best ones. Incredible athletes doing balletic things. Balletic. At impossible angles. (laughs) It was uh, Alvin Ailey-esque. It was like Balanchinius out there. Yeah, (laughs) Tharpian. And yet... I'm so, done. I'm done with my choreographer. You got any more? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm out. Mark Morris. And yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. Thank you. Fosse. <laughs> like, can we get some fo- Bob Fosse? Yes. Um, the jazz hands jazz at the hands. end of the game. <laughs> so um, where do you want to start? I mean, you were particularly perturbed by Belichick's treatment of uh, Malcolm Butler. We can get to the concussion protocol, Stefan. Don't worry. Please. If you want to talk about Malcolm Butler right now, we can start there. So Malcolm Butler, defensive hero in a previous Super Bowl for the Patriots. Yeah, he caught that uh, ill-fated Russell Wilson slant pass in the end zone. Looked to be crying before the game on the sidelines during the national anthem, and I don't think it was because he was moved to tears standing up for the flag. Um, And it was really not clear what happened. He didn't play on defense. He played a little bit on special teams, apparently. I didn't notice that. Um, Belichick, after the game, intimated that maybe he had been sick. But Here was his like quote after disc. the game. Go ahead, Josh. Here was his quote after the game. They gave up on me. Fuck. It is what it is. That's a good concatenation. I don't think Malcolm Butler thought sentences. he was sick. No. So, you know, Belichick said he wanted to give his team the best chance to win. Stefan is rolling his eyes. I mean, Mike, we obviously were not in the uh, practices. Butler had not had a great year. But no. it's, not, it's not like the, you know, Patriots uh, backup corners were doing a real bang-up job out there. Um, Belichick's friend right. Nick Saban might have uh, subbed in uh, the backup, uh, given right. uh, what Eric we just Rowe, His backup, Eric Rowe, was, uh, had some good plays, but also in one-on-one coverage against Alshon Jeffrey, which is a tough assignment. Got out-leaped and uh, out-grabbed for the ball for the first touchdown for the Eagles. Here's the thing. Malcolm Butler... When people express their outrage, it was because of what he did a couple Super Bowls ago. But, you know, that's not why Bill Belichick doesn't win Super Bowls based on what a guy did for him last year or last week. Yeah, he should be thankful he de- didn't get cut. <laughs> I mean, Butler was part of the defense that has been terrible all year. His backup isn't any better, I guess, or, or else he would have played earlier. 
It just seems, and it doesn't seem to me, if we're going to acquiesce to Bill Belichick's genius, which we should, how do we nitpick this decision and call it obviously wrong? I mean, it's a gigantic, bold decision, and it upsets a defense, and it was obviously done for a reason, and maybe the reason it was done, you know, I don't think Roe played well, but Butler hadn't been playing well all year. Well, we don't know what the reasons might have been either. We don't know what might have transpired in the locker room. We don't know what might have gone on in the in, during this off week before the Super Bowl. And we really don't have complete information here. But, you know, Belichick, I think, for all of the genius that we rightfully subscribe to, does do things that can upset the psychology of a team. And he's not afraid to do them. And yeah, that might be why they win so much, but it is heartless. And sometimes those actions may have unintended consequences. We just don't know. Yeah, I mean, it seems like the Patriots win a whole heck of a lot, and then sometimes they lose, and then Belichick always does inhumane things, and so maybe when <laughs> they lose, uh, it's it's just a coincidence. You could just find inhumane things dur- at, around every Patriots game. I mean, the the entire like sport is like such a meat grinder and so terrible mm-hmm. that it, I agree with Mike that it seems a little bit weird to focus on this one like individual thing. And I mean, except he was crying. Yeah, he was crying, yeah. and you know. And I'll give you. I'll give you a quote from an Eagles assistant. <laughs> when they saw Roe in the game, we they knew they had their chance. Why? Quote: We had Roe on our team here in Philly. We knew that was a mismatch. <laughs> Roe's a former Eagle. They were psyched to see him in the game. And I think it's fair to say that um, in the AFC title game, you know, the Patriots came back, but they were like totally out-schemed and discombobulated against Blake Bortles and the say Jaguars it, offense. Please say it, Mike. Yeah. Say please it, Mike. Blake, uh, against Blake Bortles, of all Bortles's. And, you know, they were able to come back because Blake Bortles, Blake bortles But, you know, in this game, the Eagles, and, you know, to their credit, they didn't do what the Falcons did. You know, they kept um, being aggressive. They went for it uh, on fourth down in that uh, late drive. They, you know, kept throwing. They didn't just try to, like, run the clock out. But this was not, especially on the defensive side of the ball, I mean, the Patriots definitely improved throughout the year and went from being, like, epically, you know, comically awful in the beginning to being respectable by the end. But against, like, really good competition and really good coaching in the last two games, it wasn't like you were really wowed by what the Patriots were doing schematically um, or personnel-wise. Right, and it often isn't like that. And this is why it's aura but track record. We, you couldn't make the case that the Patriots were the best team based on their horrible defense. Their offense is, of course, always good. But you had to look at their terrible defense and say, well, that's a huge liability. But here's why this argument doesn't hold that much water. So going into the game, then you say, you know, and the Eagles have a really good defense. But they had a terrible defense during the game. (laughs) They gave up 600 yards. So, you know, based on one game and I guess one scheme, it's hard to uh, make broad sweeping declarations. So Chris Nowinski on Twitter, who we had on the show um, a few weeks ago, talking about um, the concussion protocol and how it works and doesn't work. We've seen some really good examples, I think, of progress. I would argue that Rob Gronkowski missing um, the balance of the AFC championship game with a concussion was a sign of progress. You had Brandon Cooks, the Patriots wide receiver, take a blindside hit, go out of the game and not come back in. Um, But then there was the really disturbing moment, which 
I don't feel like it was given that much attention on the NBC broadcast um, when Patrick Chung, the Patriots' safety, got um, knocked unconscious. Um, and this is what uh, Chris Nowinski pointed out. Jay Ajayi, the Philadelphia running back, like made the like he's asleep motion, um, which and, you know, Nowinski said, like, players don't mess around with that. It's not like there's there's any reason not to believe Ajayi that Chung was knocked unconscious. He would know. And yet Chung, you know, went back in the game like really soon after that, after um, what uh, seemed like a pretty perfunctory evaluation. Blue stuff. tent. Yeah, he went into the blue tent for a short time and was back on the field really quickly. Um, and what happens? He comes back in the game, hits his head on the turf. And goes out and does not return after that. Hit his head on the turf trying to make a tackle. Um, You know, what more can you add to this? It is becoming depressingly obvious that the NFL has no clue how to handle this properly. It was telling, I think, I don't know if you agree, Mike, that um, Chris Collinsworth was just belaboring um, the replay reviews on those two eagle touchdowns as the the like kind of thing that was of larger concern around like the, we need to fix this these like NFL this games this is what's wrong with the NFL and it, and yet mm. it just didn't seem like they paid much attention or really called out anyone around um, that Patrick Chung issue. Well, the structure of things are and 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 this is just like the timeout situation in uh, the NBA and especially the NCAA, which drives you crazy. Uh, Josh, one of the reasons that it's so easy to note what a uh, what a uh, bane it is for each of the leagues is that is the very is the very nature of what a bane it is, which is that there's so much time devoted to it. Right, so you right, have right. so much time where you could talk about, is this a catch? Is this not a catch? Let's show it a hundred times. You have to necessarily dwell on that. And then as Collinsworth, he's wrong the first time, although it was arguable, he's wrong on the Earth's time. He, I, I don't think, I don't understand why he was questioning that it was a catch, except to think about that similar uh, catch in the uh, non-catch in the Pittsburgh game. But anyway, when you give it an announcer three minutes, he's going to talk about that. When the concussion happens and there's so many things going on and then we have maybe a shot on the sideline and we don't have a sideline reporter, you noted that there was the uh, JGI doing the he's asleep uh, motion, but I'm sure I'm not sure, but it's quite likely the actual game announcers didn't even see that. Yeah, that's you not know, an very NBC spotter it. or like the production crew yeah. to, to so, catch so, that. And there's I'm just not, not as much right, and there's just not as much time to dwell on it. Well, and, and, and I do think, and the last thing is, I do think that concussions are something that the NFL really, really has no answer for and doesn't want to dwell on. And catches are more a thing that Goodell himself says it is a problem. We need to address it. He said that more forthrightly than he ever has with concussions. <laughs> But of course they're going to talk more about the, this rules interpretation because there's so much to talk about there and it gets people animated and it's a two sides debate. Um, so it's very easy for Chris Collinsworth to go on and on about his opinion about whether a catch was made, even though he went on and on into the post game when he could have been, you know, celebrating Nick Foles and the Eagles winning their first Super Bowl, but continued to hammer on this. But with the concussions, what's the conversation? Yeah, Patrick Chung didn't come back to the game. That should have been noted. Patrick Chung was given a perfunctory evaluation in the tent, didn't go to the locker room. That should have been noted after the first uh, hit. Um, Beyond that, should the announcers have said, wow, it was really great that you see a 
player on an opposing team alerting the sidelines, doctors and spotters that this guy is unconscious and needs medical attention immediately. Um, in a perfect world, yeah, I would love to see announcers talk about that in real time during the game. Is that likely to happen on an NBC broadcast in the Super Bowl? I don't think so. I'm going to defend Collinsworth on the replay reviews. Um although I didn't hear um, what Stefan is describing, and I will stipulate that it was probably annoying. But during the game, so remember back to that Kelvin Benjamin catch a few years ago in which I think everyone agreed that, you know, he had, that there was a dispute about whether he had possession of the ball, whether the ball moved, you know, while he was trying to get his feet in. Um, And this was a very similar play here. You know, they ruled uh, that Benjamin didn't make the catch, they ruled that Clement in this game did make the catch. Um, and I think it's totally fair for Collinsworth to note the NFL has been like crazily inconsistent absolutely. on this rule this year. And there is absolutely no way to predict because they've used different standards um, throughout the year. I agree, I agree on, on that one. Said, not because he, so, he was so adamant that it wasn't a catch. That, and the Ertz one wasn't a catch. That's what bothered me. And that he kept look, hammering it after the confetti was falling. Look, if you the use Ertz one was a catch. If you <laughs> use... Let, but back to the Clement one. If you use the NFL standard from like a month ago, then that wasn't a catch. Yeah. And it's reasonable for him. I mean, totally reasonable. I guess, I guess what he should have said was like, look, um, the NFL has ruled that plays like this before aren't catches. They've also been really inconsistent. So honestly, I don't know what they're going to say. Like that, I think, would have been like the note perfect thing, thing for him to say. On the Ertz thing, I agree with you, but I also feel like back to the point of the NFL being uh, inconsistent. It would not have shocked me if they ruled that wasn't a catch, just because you can't have any yeah. confidence that they're going to, you know, f- abide by what they claim their own rules are. But to me, it just felt like Chris Collinsworth was unhappy with the ruling, and he kept hammering the point. All right, fair. Um, but 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 it wouldn't have shocked <laughs> you. But it would have. They wouldn't. Mike Pereira or whoever comes on wouldn't have had a stream of things to say to. Uh, defend the Earth one being overturned, sure. right? Like it wouldn't have shocked you just because it, it wouldn't shock you in the same way where we're like, oh, nothing matters and nothing's true, but things do matter. It's inconsistent <laughs> and it's picky. Wait, but, wait, like, there things, was, matter? things matter. Let's uh, things matter. Let's slow down. There is Jesse James was not a catch for a couple of reasons that they could point to, and Ertz was a catch for the same number of reasons. He established himself as a runner. Yes, he established himself as a runner, and then he established himself as, you know, a place kicker, and eventually is going to go on to be a philanthropist. But that that first play, the fact that it's right on the line in a 50-50 play, I... I think that it's it's a tough position for Collinsworth and Michaels to be in because what we want our announcers to do is to say it was or wasn't. We kind of demand that of them. And they did it, and they got it wrong, and it was 50-50. But if they just said, I don't know, I can't tell, that would have been a lot more unsatisfying. I don't know. I think that the much better thing is for the announcer to say, as Josh described, it's been completely confusing. I don't know. Let's see what happens. All right, let's end by uh, looking at what's going to happen next for these teams. Carson Wentz, who is potentially going to be the MVP before going out with his knee injury. So long as his rehab goes well, he'll be the starter again next year. Foles is under contract for one more season. Um, He would be the proverbial luxury for the Eagles to keep around as a backup. But I've um, been seeing a lot of speculation that he'll get traded maybe for a second round pick. It seems like totally insane uh, to... Uh, you know, have the 
winning Super Bowl quarterback who played like better than say like Jeff Hotstetler did, uh, yeah. you know, to win the game to have him now be uh, trade bait. But I mean, it does seem kind of logical in the kind of Belichickian, cold-hearted world world of the NFL that get what you can for this dude. Or get what you can with yeah. this dude or give him a chance to go start somewhere now that his value is as high as it is. I mean, he knows he's not going to play unless Carson Wentz gets hurt again. So why not give the guy an opportunity to go finish his career on the field? J-E-T-S. Do you, th- <laughs> Do you think they'll get more for him than uh, Garoppolo, the second round pick from the Niners? I don't know. I mean, yeah, I think people know what Nick Foles is. And I think people, I think They'll definitely go with Wentz. Wentz was on his way to winning the MVP. And the thing I would say is that Wentz seems to be a quarterback where it's very hard to stop him and you don't. Granted, they had an offensive scheme and Wentz achieved in that scheme. It's not like he just played vanilla offense, but you you had to do fewer special things for him. And uh, the kind of quarterback where you have to do things like rollouts and run pass options, that is more defensible. Once you have, once you put requirements on a guy all right here are the requirements for him to succeed and those though you give the defense an opportunity to take away the requirements and therefore the guy can't succeed so i would think this is this just argues that wentz is going to be the better long-term quarterback and also it's not just the uh the the standard for the Belichickian world of what have you done for me lately? They don't want to Joe Flacco this situation. They don't want to over reward a guy for a Super Bowl MVP f- performance. All right, and Tom Brady says he's going to be back. I enjoyed a couple of David Roth uh, post game tweets about Brady. Tweet number one: Tom Brady despondently eating a second helping of spiralized zucchini noodles with ion sauce <laughs> in direct defiance of his shaman's instructions. Tweet, tweet number two, credit to Brady for stepping up here. This one's on me, he says, clearly emotional. I drank the wrong type of water and also not nearly enough of it. Um, but Brady, he's going to drink his ion water. He's going to drink his uh, spiralized uh, zucchini drink. Probably eat his spiralized yeah, yeah, zucchini. Yeah. I don't understand how food works. And he'll be back next year. Yeah. He's going to put those special pajamas on. <laughs> Um, but Rob maybe, Gronkowski, maybe that's, the key to the, maybe that's the key to the game that without knowing it, the Eagles defender snuck a strawberry into Brady's mouth on one of those plays. Um, Rob Gronkowski, like, oh, wait, wait, wait. strangely contemplative of, of, of Tom Brady. <laughs> let us also stipulate he was brilliant. He can't run. I don't care how much no. pliability he, he has never at could. this point. No. He's running less and less. I mean, he is yeah. less and less able to move. I don't care that he says he wants to play till he's 45 and that he is more pliable than Gumby. He's going to run into physical issues. You have to run a little bit to play football. Look at Peyton Manning. Can I talk about either. Can I talk about Gronk right. now, please? Sure. Let me talk about All Gronk. Right. Strangely contemplative. I'm going to stick with that phrase. Saying after the game that he needs to think about uh, what his options are. It could just be po- post game sadness. Uh, but he's 29 years old. He's taken an incredible amount of punishment. He had like a plate inserted in his arm. He had the concussion and the AFC Championship game. I saw Dante Stallworth on Twitter saying, "Dude, you really need to retire." Um, it did kind of like shock me because Gronk is just like the meathead to end all meatheads. He's like, uh, it's just like a slab of salami up there. But like to see him like thinking about his own mortality and pondering like whether this is a smart thing for him to continue to doing was like very touching in a way. Yeah. And also yeah. I think 
poignant, but also another indication that the the attention that is given to the health of NFL players post career has an effect. If someone like Rob Gronkowski can basically sit up on the podium right after the Super Bowl and without directly saying it, says, I'd like to live a little bit longer and maybe reduce my chances of getting CTE and be able to walk when I'm 40, then there's been progress. It's sort of that, hey, Doug Peterson went for it on fourth down and hey, Jay Ajayi was notifying doctors that a dude is unconscious. There, It's another sign of progress that an athlete like Gronkowski can can say, I got to think about this. Gronk no want, no Gronk no more. That was his thing. Uh, look, if the, if Gronk catches the Hail Mary, you think he's being strangely contemplative? <laughs> he's going to Gronk, he's going to Gronk out for all the Gronk decades to come. Would have been a Gronking to remember. That's right. Mike Pesca, our vice president of Gronk management, also the host of Slate's Daily Podcast. The gist, what, about, what was it? Couscous. Uh, there was uh, some couscous with roasted vegetables, mm. a little ratatouille plus couscous. We also had, uh, I believe we did have that string stringated, striolated, ionized zucchini. There was mm-hmm. a lot going on. You guys are invited next year if you're, if you're up here. Thank you, Mike. Thanks, Mike. Be well. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Pitchers and catchers. Baseball cliche. Report in a week. Not all pitchers and catchers, though you Darvish might not be in a spring training camp. Same for Jake Arrieta and Jonathan Lucroy. As it looks now, more than 100 free agents will be waiting by their cell phones when camps open in Florida and Arizona. And that is creating, to put it mildly, tension among players and owners. And to put it not mildly, potential for a major labor battle after a remarkable quarter century of labor peace. Baseball columnist Jeff Passan of Yahoo Sports is with us. Hey, Jeff. Gentlemen, how are you? Well, thank you for coming on the show. Jeff, it's beginning to remind me of the labor disputes of the 1980s and 90s in baseball, deep-rooted, fundamental disagreements about the way the baseball labor market is structured and functions, and now the route that it has taken to get here is really coming into focus. Can you lay out the fundamental issues for us? This stems not just from the labor agreement in 2016, uh, which I think people from both sides believe is tilted uh, significantly in favor of the owners, but uh, even the ones before that, this has been coming for a while now. You saw free agency getting squeezed, and and the problem with free agency getting squeezed like it is, is, that's the only place theoretically that owners have to spend their money anymore. The international amateur market is capped. The domestic amateur market is essentially capped. The penalties are so severe that teams aren't going to go over uh, their prescribed limits. So when you've got nowhere to spend money, you assume it's going to be spent in free agency, but now we've got a generation of executives who see what everyone else has seen with free agency, and that's that it's not a good investment in putting money into guys who are 30 plus years old. There are certain instances where it works out particularly well. 
most cases, though, it's not something uh, that that pans out in the long term. So now you've got players who have great expectations for free agent riches. Uh, You have teams that are not willing to go out and spend that money. You've got a glut of players waiting for jobs. And in the end, uh, you've got this standoff uh, where both sides are, are playing this game of chicken and neither seems terribly inclined to budge. Why don't you tell us about a free agent contract from, say, five to ten years ago that's like an example of a contract, and maybe not even like a famous one that people would know about, but what's an example of a contract for like a mid-tier player that would just never get done today because GMs are just too smart? Uh, I think from a couple years ago, the Jordan Zimmerman deal. And, you know, I've been told... Yeah, Jordan Zimmerman's a pitcher, was coming off Tommy John surgery, was with the Washington Nationals, and actually was a really good pitcher. Got five years and $110 million. And, uh, you know, Lance Lynn almost is a perfect comp for Jordan Zimmerman in terms of his performance, in terms of his peripherals, uh, in terms of, of him. St- you know, he's had Tommy John, but otherwise he's made 33 starts every year of his career. And, and Lance Lynn went out there at the, at the beginning of the offseason looking for, uh, for Jordan Zimmerman money and, and has been told that uh, at least a handful of teams don't believe he's worth Tyler Chatwood money. And Tyler Chatwood got three years and $38 million from the Cubs earlier this year. So uh, that is one of so many examples out there of guys who simply are not getting paid what has been expected in the past. And it's been a shock to the system of the players because the, the entire uh, strength of the union is built around there being a robust free agent market. And this feels to them like an attack on free agency, which is essentially a, an attack on them. And you can understand, Stefan, why the players are angry and they have a lot of people to be angry with. So if we put ourselves in the mind of a pitcher, say, who's coming to free agency. Let's say I'm a pitcher who's, you know, got signed out of high school and um, there was a, a cap on how much money I could get. Like, okay, I've got, you know, that makes sense. Like other sports put a, a cap on on how much amateur talent can get in the in the draft. Then, you know, you're under team control for six years. Once you get to the major leagues where you're making like prescribed minimum salaries. And then maybe let's say, since you're a typical major league pitcher, you get hurt a lot, you hurt your arm or, you know, you don't have a necessarily a clean bill of health. And then maybe you finally get through and like, are, you know, one of the few who manages to make it to free agency and you're like ready to, you know, finally get your payday after making it through all of these like years of potential poor health and not getting, you know, on the free market and then you don't get any money. I mean, you're going to yeah. be pissed off, yeah. right, Stefan? Yeah. And and the, part of this is that for three decades now, there's been kind of an unspoken agreement among the players and the owners, which is that we will reward you on the back end of your career for performance during the front and middle end of your career. So when you make the market, which makes no sense and has never made sense, but because of the way free agency emerged out of Marvin Miller in the sixties and seventies, that was the deal that the union and management struck. Um, And it, you know, it certainly worked for the players as long as owners were willing 
to spend this way. But as you mentioned earlier, Jeff, the introduction of more analytically based front offices who didn't have careers in the game, um, the mm-hmm. addition of things like the luxury tax that is curbed, has put a, basically a ceiling on on payrolls, d- d- making teams like the Yankees and the Dodgers that may have been willing to go way beyond what everyone else was paying, now have interest in reining it in. And the trend in baseball, which we haven't touched on yet, to tank, to get your payroll down to as little as it can be, has proven to be successful for teams like the Houston Astros and the Chicago Cubs. It's an incredible confluence of things that are bad for players. Because like you brought up the the competitive balance tax, that's been around forever, but it has not been weaponized by teams like it has been this offseason. Tanking. You know, I, I for a long time was... I'm not going to say I was pro-tanking, but it's like I understood why teams were doing it. What I didn't do, though, was look at it from uh, a 30,000-foot view where when you've got five or six teams that are not trying to compete, you know, individually a team not trying to win makes sense. But as a whole, when there's half a dozen or, or this year even, you know, up to 10 teams that just simply are not trying to compete for even a playoff spot, it's like the the effect on the free agent market is significant. And what this all comes back to ultimately is that baseball revenues have grown uh, obscenely to the point where they there this is now a 10 plus billion dollar a year industry. Franchise values over the last 5 years have gone up two and a half times from 18 billion to 46 billion. And the players just want their cut of the pie. And uh, you know what? The problem for them is that in these types of battles, even though it's billionaires versus millionaires, the public tends to side with the teams. I don't get why, but it's just a, it is a fact. It is a reality that players are always the ones who are being cast as greedy. And when the average salary for a major league baseball player is $4 million a year, it does not elicit a whole lot of sympathy when you're trying to fight over these obscene uh, sums of cash. I don't know, Jeff. I mean, I covered some of this stuff in the 90s and during the, the last work stoppage in 94. And clearly the public's perception is shaped by what reporters write. And reporters in general have become far more sympathetic toward labor than they were in the 70s and earlier even when players were viewed as fortunate to be playing a game for for their careers. Um, right. What, what seems to be, you know, what we haven't gotten into yet here is that we're assuming that there is no smoking gun collusion among ownership to retard the free agent market this winter. Um, one agent came out with a statement last week talking about how player the lack of player signing seems to be coordinated. You wrote about this in a couple of pieces. You also wrote that teams aren't making offers to agents for players. They're instead asking agents to set the parameters for their clients. And that seems like a sign to me that – that there is something wrong and something deliberate in the behavior of management. I've had a lot of conversations with people in, uh, you know, people who are in the union as in players, uh, people who work for the union, people who have in the past worked for the union. And there's a wide uh, variance of opinions on just how, uh, how, how difficult it is to prove collusion. Uh, you know, people who were in the labor wars back in, in the seventies and the eighties, 
they, they're sitting there saying, why hasn't a, a grievance been filed yet? Uh, the, you know, you need to be aggressive with something like this. Other people are saying, you know, take your time, uh, let the evidence gather and and then do something. I think ultimately that's probably where this is going. I It would not at all surprise me if some kind of a grievance were filed uh, a, a month or two into the season once the market uh, has fully shaken out. Well, you know, Stefan, you said, you know, there might not be a smoking gun for collusion. There also just might not be any collusion right. at all going on. Let's be clear about that. And we have this kind of weird tension, right? Because in the first half of the segment, we're talking about how teams and GMs are getting a lot smarter. And reporters are, you know, obviously more sympathetic to labor than they used to be. But reporters are also really sympathetic to smart GMs and excoriated GMs in the past for making dumb deals. And so, you know, Jeff was saying, you know, whatever the market price of years past had been set at, it seems like it would be logical to give those guys that money. But could you argue that it's collusion if we're saying that like guys in the next tier are not going to get the um, kinds of contracts that were kind of derided as irrational before? It doesn't seem like collusion to me. Yeah, it's not just that. I don't think I don't think the Ariettas and Darvishes of the world are going to get contracts like they did before. And I understand that. I, I have a study that I'm going to be writing about. Uh, I looked back at every hundred million plus dollar contract that was signed. There have been seventy one of them. Uh, Thirty two of them came went to players before they hit free agency. Thirty nine of them went to players after they hit free agency. And if you want to get really nerdy and wonky, you can go on Fangraphs and look at the bottom and see what the value for each year from every player is based on their wins above replacement. You know, there's a, a dollar value, however many million per, per win above replacement. And so I used those dollar values and looked at which contracts uh, actually were good for the players and which were good for, for the teams. And of the 32 contracts that were signed pre-free agency, 19 of them were positive for the teams. Of the 39 contracts signed post-free agency, 12 of them were. There you go. And, and, and it is, I mean, it's, it's clear how much riskier it is to sign older players. You know, I, I sorted the data to look at post-30 years old. And, uh, I mean, it's, it's true. You know, you have guys like Max Scherzer and... Uh, Scott Boris can stand behind Max Scherzer's contract all he wants because that has been all, that has already paid for itself. That has all, you know Max Scherzer already has earned two hundred ten million dollars in value over three years. That's how good he's been in his first three years. But for every Max Scherzer, there's a lot of guys who are just unmitigated disasters, yeah. and that's what teams want to avoid. Because if you're a general manager who signs one of those awful contracts, it will hang over you like a storm cloud for the rest of your tenure. In the 70s and 80s, the operating theory of baseball was that there was always one owner who was stupider than the owner who came before him. There was always one person that was going to be willing to offer and pay something that is perceived as outlandish. What's changed is that ownership is a lot smarter and management is a lot smarter. So, look, other sports, the percentages of revenue distributed – from management to players are slightly higher, but baseball's revenues are growing rapidly. They're over $10 billion. Player salaries were a little bit over $4 billion last year. They could go down this year, Jeff. 
Um, so th- th- there does seem to be position here for the union to be unhappy with the amount of revenue that makes its way from Major League Baseball to the players. Yeah, and it, what what they end up with is the salaries plus each team kicks in about fourteen million dollars in benefits. In the you know in the end last year and over the last few years they've been somewhere between forty five and fifty percent of revenues, and both sides tend to agree on that number and agree that it hasn't changed all that much. But like you said, the you know opening day payrolls I wrote earlier this week look like they're going to be going down from last year. That hasn't happened in nearly a decade. We've had 5.5% growth year over year on average over the last decade or so. And so to see them going down, uh, another drastic change. All right. I want to pin you down a little bit just because it is so like clear that the value that players bring um, to teams, you know, when they're cheap and cost controlled in the first few years is so much higher then in their later careers when they're eligible for the, this free agency uh, money. Mm-hmm. I don't think we're going to get a system where, you know, guys um, when they're 22 are going to get like $200 million and then you'll be cost controlled like later in your career. I don't think we're going to get a total reversal. But like, can you, you know, tell us like what is some like sort of middle ground there? Like how can we fix, how could this be fixed? Uh, listen, I, I would love to be pinned down on this, but uh, the 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 notion that I can uh, I can come up with a viable baseball economic system, uh, I'm working on it. Like, what good person, are you, man? Come on! I know every person uh, every person with whom I speak about this, I say to them, give me three ideas uh, of of how to even things out going forward, and you have really radical. Uh, ideas like Len Casper, the the great Cubs play-by-play guy, said if you want to promote competition, then the easiest way to do that is to give the number one pick in the draft to the first team that misses the playoffs. So the team with the best record at doesn't make the playoffs gets the number one pick. That promotes competition. That promotes spending. Uh, that incentivizes teams to try and win. And the tanking thing, by the way, is such a huge issue. It really is because the the anti-competitiveness in baseball right now, I think, is the fulcrum on which uh, this entire thing is is moving. And it's it's gotten to the point now where where teams uh, it's almost like fans have been convinced that their team losing is a good thing. That's really weird. And, and that kind of goes against the, the whole notion of sport to me that uh, you have to lose to win. I, I don't believe that to be the case. I just think it might be the more efficient route, but uh, we, we've fallen so in love with efficiency that uh, we've taken that as an excuse uh, to, to get the money distributed to younger players though. I don't know if earlier free agency uh, is the way to do it. I think that a higher minimum salary certainly could help with that. Um, and and there there are just so many possible levers that well, I promise when I have my plan, I will come back to you and, and we will discuss it in great depth. Salary cap. Someone's going to say salary cap. Baseball has fought of course. It forever. Um, but I think this yep. is, I think a salary cap and a floor and a ceiling are going to be on the table for baseball in the future. Jeff Passan, he is a columnist writing about baseball for Yahoo Sports. Jeff, thanks for coming on the show. Pleasure is mine, boys. Thanks for having me. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now it is time for After Balls, and it was a great Super Bowl for Missed Kicks. Stefan. That's mean. It was a great Super Bowl for Missed Kicks. There was a missed uh, field goal off the upright. We had the uh, uh, missed extra point by the Eagles. I was looking up this uh, the history of missed extra points in the Super Bowl, um, and there have been nine, at least there were nine as of 2016, so I think we're up to uh, double digits now. And... The one that caught my eye would actually be the two that caught my eye. This was um, in 1977. There was a kicker for the Oakland Raiders named Errol Mann. Mm -hmm. You familiar with Errol? Oh, yeah. Famous kicker from the 70s, sure. (laughs) Uh, He was from the 70s and he was a kicker. I'll leave it to you to determine how famous he was. So this was during the era in which uh, mixed extra points were kind of a uh, common occurrence in the Super Bowl. It was the third consecutive Super Bowl with a missed extra point, except Errol Mann missed two extra points in the Super Bowl. Did not prevent the uh, Oakland Raiders from winning that game uh, against the Minnesota Vikings. But Errol Mann, congratulations on being a missed extra point trendsetter. Stefan, what is your Errol Mann? Oscar Gamble died last week after just 68 years. Gamble played for seven teams and hit 200 home runs, 21 of them, Joe Poznanski noted in an obituary, off of future Hall of Famers. He was five foot eleven and an almost unbelievable 160 pounds. He generated power from a spring-loaded swing uncoiled from a bent crouch. He was great at trolling reporters. I may be the hardest hitting left-handed batter since Babe Ruth, he once said, and was quoted. Seriously. Uh, His career stretched from 1969 to 1985, corresponding exactly to my sentient fandom, first grade through college. I guess my sentient fandom has continued since college, but that was the peak years of my sentient fandom. But in death as in life, there is one thing that people really remembered about Oscar Gamble, his hair. His 10-inch or more afro was a mushroom cloud of awesome that could not be contained by hat or helmet. Richard Sandomir's New York Times obit has a good rundown how people thought Gamble was a militant because of his fro, how George Steinbrenner made him cut it when he was traded to the Yankees. It does get one detail wrong. Sandomir says that Topps airbrushed Gamble's baseball card after he was traded to New York to restore his fro. In fact, the fro in the picture was real. The Yankees cap and pinstripes were painted on famously badly. But there's more to the story of Gamble's hair and his life. He was drafted in 1968 by the Cubs and called up at age 19 during the pennant race the next season. The Cubs yearbook called him the Ernie Banks of tomorrow, but that winter the team traded him to Philadelphia. Why? Well, according to a 1978 profile in the Chicago Tribune, Cubs general manager John Holland learned that Gamble, while playing rookie ball in Idaho, had dated, quote, a variety of white men's daughters, end quote, and the team was worried about its image. 
After the Phillies sent him to Cleveland, Gamble debuted his big hair at spring training in 1973. The Akron Beacon Journal said that the Afro prompted one of the biggest laughs of the day because Gamble couldn't fit a cap over it. Manager Ken Aspromonte made Gamble cut it. Gamble told reporters he lost two pounds of hair, two and a half inches in height, and three cap sizes. Gamble let it grow during the season, though, and stuck with the oversized do in 74 and 75. There were a lot of terrible sentences written by sports writers about Gamble's hair-raising fro. This one, however, might be one of the worst sentences, not only about his hair, but about anything. It was written in the spring of 1975 by Hank Kozlowski of the Mansfield, Ohio News Journal. Quote, the only thing hanging over Gamble's head other than the most famous afro in baseball, which had been trimmed three or four inches but hardly looks it, is an alleged rape in Baltimore last year, which he prefers not to discuss since the court case is still pending. Okay, at that moment, I stopped searching on newspapers.com for Oscar Gamble and Afro and started searching for Oscar Gamble and rape. UPI reported that prosecutors had dropped the case after the alleged victim withdrew her complaint, citing possible strain on her health and emotions and a wish not to involve her friends. This was after she had told police that Gamble had, quote, slapped, threatened, and finally raped her in a Baltimore hotel room. Cleveland traded Gamble to the Yankees. Gamble arrived for spring training in 1976 with his fro and a long beard. It was a Saturday. Manager Billy Martin wouldn't let him practice until he cut his hair. The problem was that the local barbershop was closed on Sunday and Monday. So the Yankees hired a barber, a barber who had never cut a black man's hair, which, based on the photos, is obvious. Gamble's wife, Juanita, literally cried. Gamble said, I feel like I'm naked. And he added, and I think he was joking, that now he'd have to turn down an offer to appear in commercials for the hair care product Afrosheen. Beards and long hair aren't the New York Yankees, Billy Martin said. George Steinbrenner threatened to trade players who didn't cut their hair, beards, or sideburns. The good news is that players knew Steinbrenner and Martin were assholes. They joked to reporters about the hair edict and the military environment that Steinbrenner was trying to impose. The irony here was that Steinbrenner had just been reinstated from a two-year suspension by Commissioner Bowie Kuhn after pleading guilty to two felony counts for making illegal contributions to political campaigns, including Richard Nixon's in 1972. After the 76 season, the Yankees traded Gamble to the White Sox for Bucky Dent. In Chicago, he let his hair grow anew, but not to its peak height. I don't want to go through all that hassle, Gamble told a reporter. Hassle because of his hair. Fucking America. The most significant part of Gamble's career story, though, comes next. He hit 31 dingers for Chicago, became a free agent. McDonald's founder and Padres owner Ray Kroc signed him for $2.85 million over six years. That was a lot of money at the time, and the coverage of Gamble's contract is a reminder that reporters were assholes, too. Most of all, Gamble Likes Money was the headline on that 1978 Chicago Tribune profile that I mentioned earlier. It was written by Phil Hirsch. Hirsch quoted Gamble saying how lucky he was to have played with Hank Aaron, Willie Mays, Roberto Clemente, and Billy Williams. What was Hirsch's follow-up question? Does it feel funny that you're making more money than them? Then Hirsch wrote, It feel good. Oscar Gamble says, I would wager that Hirsch used feel instead of feels to convey what he really thought of Gamble and repeated his full name to reinforce that 
Oscar Gamble was no Hank Aaron. Hirsch's profile concluded, Gamble is neither a philosophical nor sentimental man. His life is a dollars and cents proposition. What a pompous, condescending thing to say, even in 1978. Gamble had a lousy season in San Diego and was traded to Texas and then back to the Yankees, where for five years he part-timed, pinch hit, and hit a big home run in the 1981 AL Championship Series. Under the Padres' contract, he received deferred payments for 20 years. Oscar Gamble should be remembered for his magnificent hair, but also for demonstrating that athletes should get what they can when they can and never feel badly about it. There's a lot going on there. Oscar Gamble led a full life. Josh, what's your Errol man? On Christmas Day, BuzzFeed's Katie Natopoulos asked on Twitter, what was, quote, the incident... In your high school, Natopolis got close to 6,000 replies. Among them, in my year seven agriculture class, my teacher told us all to hold hands as someone held onto the electric fence. And a girl in my class received menacing letters from a stalker, but then it turned out she was sending them to herself. And someone left campus during study hall to buy cocaine, but when an undercover cop arrested him, it turned out to be a bag full of sheetrock. But my favorite contribution came from San Francisco Chronicle pop culture critic Peter Hartlob, who posted a news story about a football pep rally at California's San Mateo High School in November 1986. Here's the UPI's lead. A 450-pound Bengal tiger named Rakan was just playing rough when he leaped off the stage at the pep rally and mauled a football player, his handler said Saturday. The AP's version gave the tiger's weight as 400 pounds and gave a slightly different explanation for the attack, saying that the animal apparently got excited at a noisy pep rally Friday, leaped onto a student from a stage, and bit him. The student's name was Craig Henderson, and he was a junior at San Mateo High. The Ukiah Daily Journal's headline was, Student, everything happens to me. That was a quote from Henderson who said, Everything always happens to me. A couple of years ago, I was bit by a dog. Henderson got 78 stitches to close a bite wound on the underside of his arm above his right elbow, the Ukiah paper reported. When Craig came back to school, he was laughing and smiling and telling everybody he felt great, no problem, said the school's principal. Obviously, this is the one experience he's going to remember forever about his high school years. The school had gotten the tiger from a place called Marine World Africa USA, so maybe they thought the tiger was a dolphin. Uh, Anyhow... The Santa Rosa paper quoted a Marine World spokesperson who said that the tiger apparently got excited and jumped off the stage into the front row seats, dragging the two trainers who were frantically hanging onto the chain leash. The UPI reported that there were absolutely no plans to destroy the tiger, uh, quoting the spokesperson as saying that Rakan is a good cat, has always been a good cat, and will continue to be a good cat, stressing that the tiger got caught up in the excitement of the pep rally, as one does. Uh, They were excited. The students were excited. He got excited. The tiger. Unfortunately, there was more excitement than anybody counted on. Who could have counted on it? The spokesperson said that the tiger has appeared before scores of other school assemblies without any problems. I guess those just weren't exciting. Yeah. yeah. Uh, While we know Henderson was okay, I was wondering what happened to the tiger. Indeed, the tiger did not get destroyed. Uh, Per a 1997 article, in the San Francisco Chronicle, Rakan was still at Marine World, although uh, he was uh, troubled by a stiff back and was receiving chiropractic treatment. I was most intrigued to discover, though, an item from January 1989, just short of two years after the attack at the pep rally. It's a photo of a Marine World trainer who has dressed himself up as Joe Montana 
and has his helmeted face an inch away from the tiger's snout. The caption on the photo, now this would be a tough Bengal defense for San Francisco's Joe Montana to face come Sunday. What can you say? <laughs> the tiger just loved football, Stefan. You couldn't keep him away. Great idea to just get the, get the tiger back in the Bringing mix. us back to the conundrum of what would be a good mascot to put on the field at any time. Clearly, this tiger would have been a good mascot did to some, bring into the game. Did some damage. That is our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Fort and our intern is Jason Rosenzweig. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. You should also check out the Double X Gab Fest. It's a bi-weekly podcast about feminism, gender, sexuality, health, politics, Beyonce, and other issues of interest to women and their friends. It's hosted by Hannah Rosen. Noreen Malone, June Thomas. You can get it every other Thursday by going to slate.com slash XX. Uh, for Stefan Fatsis, Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs>